This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And first, a quick public service announcement. Uh, we are extremely bandwidth-starved today uh, down in our Texas studios, so you're, you're going to hear some odd gaps occasionally, uh, so that's bandwidth catching up. But before we get started, about, I don't know, a week and a half ago or so, maybe a week ago, Julie came to me and said, have you talked to Taylor because there's really bad flooding around where she lives? And I, of course, being the sympathetic friend that I am, said, oh, I'm sure she's really happy about it because it's been really dry there. <laughs> well, I was really happy about it because it has been really dry here. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't so happy about it anymore. <laughs> and why is that? Well, I'll use one word to describe the experience. Biblical. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of water in a very short time, which meant a lot of water runoff, which meant a lot of flooding, and I got the flooding, and it was a lot of it. But I'm on high ground, the house is on high ground, the animals are on high ground, and all of that. So aside from, like, one of the fences that got hit really hard by everything that the water carries, and I'm going to have to figure out a way to get that fixed without paying thousands of dollars, um, we're, you know, we're okay. But everything's surrounding us when that went on was like the type of torrential just water washing and rushing and anything that gets in its path is going to get swept away stay off the roads they're not safe level of flooding and then it was gone and all that was left was the aftermath to deal with <laughs> but so, it was an experience one of the things that I noticed it's so different. You mentioned the amount of rain you got, and it was like 12 inches in a period of time. I don't remember what that was. And and that's like, I won't say it's like Tuesday here, but we've, a couple times a year, we'll get rain like that. And we don't have the kind of flooding that you have. So as a, as a geologist in training, why do you, why do you have such flooding when it rains? It's, it's not always like this when it rains like that. It's just that we've had drought. We've we've gone one of the longest stretches in recorded history now without any water for this particular area. And the ground was so dry. And when the ground is dry, it's not capable of absorbing water quickly. So, which is really a tragedy because we're in a drought and we need all that water. But because the ground is so dry, it's not capable of absorbing it. So it's like most of it didn't even exist as far as 
the ground getting what it needed. When it's a normal year and we have plenty of water spread out and the whole six months of rain isn't dumped on us in 12, 12 hours, we we can absorb it because the, the wetter the ground is until it reaches max absorption, it can just keep taking more and it takes, it swallows the water really quickly and nothing was able to do that because it was so dry. So all of this torrential rain, a whole half year's worth of rain in 12 hours had nowhere to go, couldn't go into the ground. And so it was all runoff and that's what caused the flood. Are things greening up now or is it still brown because the water came and went so quickly? No, it's all greening up now. And what's crazy is this May, our our 100 degree temperature started in May when normally you start maybe seeing them at the end of June, but usually it's July and August that you get this really hot weather. And for us, it hit in May and it just never let up. Just this intense heat, no rain, parching everything. And then August comes and August is supposed to be the hottest month of the year. And instead we're having May temperatures in August with all the rain. It's just completely backwards. <laughs> One of the great things about living in Southwest Florida is that the weather is always the same this time of year. And it, it in 40 years, it's never changed. And I don't know. It's really, it's comforting to know what the weather is going to be next week and what it was. It's, it's going to be the same as it was last week. And it's going to be this way until we get to October. Right. Hot, humid, and wet. And lots of rain. Yep. Yeah. All right. So last week, Taylor, or maybe it was two weeks ago, we were talking either before a show or this maybe came up during a show. I think it came up during one of the episodes. You mentioned internal dialogue and the fact that you didn't even know that was a thing when you were writing the informationist. So it was not something that you ever had to deal with. And I made a note of that and thought that would be something uh, interesting to explore, both from the perspective of of writing and how that how that might also apply to writing that transitions to television or film. Yeah, the the whole transition thing, like the adaptation thing, fascinates me in terms of the informationist specifically for. The internal dialogue reason. Because when I was writing that book and I was just learning how to write, my understanding of how the written word should be on the page was everything had to be show. But I didn't understand really what show versus tell meant in the practical sense. Like I went out of my way to show everything that could have easily been internal dialogue or narrative, but then told stuff that could have been shown. It was, it was just, it's just interesting looking at it now that it had been done fr- from a place of not really knowing what I was doing. And because there's very little internal dialogue for at least the first half of the book, maybe longer, 
it it sets up very interesting conversations or interesting interesting big chunks of dialogue and then it leaves the rest that can't be articulated cleanly without creating dumb situations or feeling forced it completely absent and so it creates this scenario where we are very distant from Monroe. We don't really know what she's thinking. We don't know her. But that was not a deliberate choice on my part. It was a structure issue that I didn't know there was another way to do it. And when you compare that against like some of the later books, especially even the Jack and Jill books, they are, if you really look at them deeply, pure internal dialogue. Like you're so close inside the characters' heads that even the narrative is more internal dialogue than it is narrative. And the juxtaposition between those two types of writing. And in in a novel, how internal dialogue being up close inside the character's head like that, it's very compelling for that type of storytelling. It doesn't work for every genre, every type of storytelling, but for what I write, it's very compelling. It creates this sense of immediacy and you feel, but if you were to try and take those same scenes and convert them to a medium where you can't know anything unless it's shown or spoken, that's quite a challenge. It's quite a jump to go from one to the other. But the informationist doesn't have that problem. And I think that's part of the reason why people who read the story, thinking of it in movie language, find it so compelling because it's almost not really, not fully, there's a lot missing, but it's closer to a script than most novels would be simply because I didn't know you could do internal dialogue. And it amuses me to no end and also fascinating. And I have, just as a reader, I have, first off, it, it, I was stunned when you told me that, that you didn't use internal dialogue in, in The Informationist. And I have not gone back to read it to see if I actually noticed that. But I remember by the end of the book being feeling really bonded to the character of Monroe. It's like, I love this character. And... I'm fully in with whatever she does next. I want to be there. I want to I want to be a part of the adventure with this character. And normally I think that much of that comes from internal dialogue, but from what you're saying that was not the case here. So I'm I'm really curious without having gone back and read it again how you did it and did you then choose to carry that forward or was it easier for you once you realize you could use internal dialogue to use that. Oh my God, so much easier once I realized that internal dialogue was a thing. And I, I think I started figuring that out at least maybe halfway through the information. So it's not the whole story that doesn't have internal dialogue, but big chunks of it don't have it. And I, I resolved that through conversations with character other characters and it's it's a curious thing really when when you're writing a story there's always this 
push-pull, pro-con, every scene has to serve its purpose. And so you can't just set up conversations to express things out loud in order to express those things out loud. Those conversations themselves have to be part of the story. And I didn't know that either, but I must have understood it uh, intuitively because the conversations that are set up are specifically character-driven. You find them between Monroe and Francisco Bayard, uh, both of them telling each other details or stories or things that the other one didn't know because of how long apart, how much time had been since they'd seen each other. And then again with Monroe and Bradford because they were new in working together. So Monroe, as a general rule, works alone. Why, if she works alone, does she have this person tagging along with her all across Africa? Well, according to the story... (laughs) Are you giving away a big secret here? So big. I'm peeling back, (laughs) back the curtain. According to the story, it's because the guy who hired her wants his man on the inside to know what's going on. But according to the author, you can't have conversations when someone's alone all the time. So she needed a sidekick. That's why I realize now you very rarely have situations in movies where there isn't a sidekick. When you have a a story that's dominated by one character, especially like a thriller or, you know, a superhero, someone who's the lead that the whole movie revolves around, there are very, very few scenes where that person is entirely alone. And when they are entirely alone, it's because they are doing something that through their actions, the actions themselves dominate the story. But once that is done, they are going to be with another person, another character, even a dog (laughs) or a cat, a plant, so that they have something to talk to. Because the only way to do it besides that is a voiceover or have them talking to themselves, both of which are, mm, they're doable, but they're techniques that, you know, they can only, you can only go so far with. And so without understanding any of that, when I constructed the informationist, I basically followed that same principle. You know, man shall not live alone. You've got to have somebody going with this character. So there's someone to talk to, someone to explain things to, someone to talk things out with. Now, eh, I don't care. I don't need a sidekick anymore because (laughs) we just can be right inside their heads and you can have these characters alone all the time doing stuff. However, it's been my experience since that while having characters alone and allowing you to see what's happening inside their heads is all fine and good and doable in a novel, it's still never going to be as interesting as when you've got two characters on the page. You know, whether in conflict or working together or arguing or cracking joke, whatever the situation is, when you've got scenes where the character is stuck inside their head because 
they can't talk to anyone, either because there is no one or because the people that they're with are enemies and they can't divulge information to them, it'll work. But it's not going to be as interesting as when you can get those characters talking. I've been reading a, well, it's a very short series. It's only two books so far. Um, but I started the first book. It was one of those things Amazon just kept recommending to me. And I thought, eh, this doesn't look like it's really my thing. But I finally broke down and started reading it. And I found that I didn't really like the main character. And I didn't really like any of the other characters. But I couldn't stop reading it because the internal dialogue was such that I felt like I knew these characters so well, even though I didn't like them, I wanted to find out what was going to happen next. And it was when you, when you told me we were going to talk about internal dialogue, I, I, I wanted to just bring that up. Just the importance. And you, you talk about this a lot in terms of really being inside the character's head. We don't have to, you can have a, a heinous antagonist and we could still find him captivating and interesting. If, we understand what's going on in his mind and, and what his motivations are for everything. And I, to a certain extent, that's what this was, except it was the protagonist who's, who's going through all of this stuff. And it was just, it was really telling to me because so much of what I read, I, I just, I like the characters and that's the reason I keep reading. But with this, it's just, I want to see what this character is doing, even though I don't really like them all that much. I think some readers feel that way about Monroe, too. They don't like her as a character, but they're fascinated by the way her mind works, which is basically saying, yep, and here's another example of that, too. Yeah, and I, that, may be, that may actually be the same for me, because there's, there's much about Monroe that's not likable, uh, but she is captivating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had to I've had to spend some time thinking about that as well, um, because anytime you start a new book, which I mean, this book isn't new. I've been working on it for forever, but I'm still like I'm in the I'm in the middle of it now. You know, that the muddle and, you know, to stay true to character to, to who is this character. And what I've come to realize is that Monroe's actions are often unlikable because she is. She's not a hero. She doesn't view herself as a hero. She's not going to sacrifice herself for the greater good. She's all about survival. But she is incredibly self-aware. And she doesn't try and pretend to be something that she's not or lie to herself and convince herself that, oh, I'm even though I do these horrible things, I'm really a, a good person at heart. She's just like, I am what I am. And that, as a character, when you're creating a character, is very freeing. You don't have to justify it. You just have to keep it consistent. And I think that when you have a character that has a consistent moral code or a consistent uh, way of behavior that is true to themselves, even though it's so different from how the average person might respond, they can still respect or connect with that consistency because it's not self-serving constantly changing based on well this suits me right now 
So to have that foundation in a character that's consistent, maintains, I mean, she changes, but the core of who she is doesn't change. And that becomes the guiding star of why is she doing this? If there's not a way for her to, way for you as the author to articulate it, that it keeps her character consistent and she's just swinging one way or the other based on, hey, this is convenient for the story, she will become very unlikable and her inner dialogue will become just like, I, I, don't, I don't want this in anymore for, for most people who read it. And uh, that as I've written this series over the years, I myself have changed. And things that Monroe does that didn't maybe once upon time bother me now do. <laughs> and so I have to understand why is this okay? Why am I okay having her do this? Uh, and and what is her lodestar? What is guiding her to do this? And that I think is what helps keep her in that range of not likable, but still compelling to the readers who don't care much for her. Let's talk about mechanics a little bit. We've I know we've touched on this before, but I see more instances when I'm reading now than I used to, I think, where very specific internal dialogue is in italics. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I I have these rules in my mind and it's you know, they're just total prejudices I I think where it's like, don't do that, do this, et cetera, et cetera. And there are, you know, there are lots of these writing rules that we all think are, you know, carved in stone, but they're not because it's a creative, it's creative process. Um, but I, I, I find that when the inner dialogue is not italicized and it's just, you're so deep inside the character's head that it's much more enjoyable and whenever I see inner dialogue in italics, it actually takes me out of the story. And I have to think, what is this? Is, is she actually, is she talking to herself? Is she thinking what's going on? I don't understand it. But I do now, or I am coming to believe that this is a prejudice on, on my part because I see more and more people doing it. So I... I'm just throwing that out. Like I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, and I know that's not generally the way you would do it, but I'm seeing people do it, and I'm, I'm seeing even traditionally published authors do it. I, I'm almost afraid to open my mouth on this one because <laughs> I feel like what I'm about to say could be uh, taken as putting down or criticizing the way someone else does things. And I don't intend it that way. Should so we I'm preface just, this as a Taylor has opinions? Taylor dis outtake? Taylor has, or Taylor has disclaimers before her opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very much similar in mind to you. I see an author. I don't, doesn't matter if they're traditionally published or indie or whatever, who uses italics to indicate or separate a character's thoughts from the narrative, to me, it just screams amateur. It screams, this author does not know what they are doing. It screams, this author is trying a new technique but doesn't actually understand the purpose of the technique. 
and it becomes very difficult to stick with the story because I no longer feel like I'm in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. So when it comes to mechanics for expressing inner dialogue, the only time I personally ever use italics to separate inner dialogue from any other inner dialogue is when those words are a direct repeat of something that has come up earlier in the story. So let's say, for example, Monroe had a conversation with somebody in chapter three, where that somebody told her some information. And then further down the road, let's say chapter 18, she's putting together pieces of the puzzle. And she recalls that conversation, like her mind went back to what Bob had told her several days ago, standing outside the shop on the wharf. And then whatever was specific to that conversation that's going through her head then, that will be repeated in italicized. But other than that, her inner thoughts are the narrative. There's no separation. And in the vein of avoiding using feeling words or thinking words or whatever, there's also not a lot going she thought back about this and blah, 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 or she wondered this or whatever. You you skip all of that and it's just, this is what Bob had said. That memory proved that X, Y, Z. And if that, then this, fine. She was gonna go do this. None of that is italicized. It is the narrative. And but because it's so close up inside her head, you know, inner dialogue and and narrative become one. And so there's no need to separate the two. And there's no, no need to have all the filler words. And when you eliminate all those she wondered, she thought, etc., out of it, and you just state those thoughts as fact the narrative unfolds itself. The the inner dialogue unfolds itself with all the extra padding or words or finagling that you would have to do to separate one from the other. It just is. And you avoid that annoyance of having to italicize, especially if you have a character that does a lot of thinking. Um, If you there'd be too much, the italics would just be everywhere. If you have a character that doesn't do a lot of thinking because of the genre or whatever, I mean, I I would seriously be asking, are are you sure you got this right? Because if characters drive the story and character motivation is what's causing the characters to do what they do, and if we want to understand those motivations, we have to understand what the characters are thinking. So if your character's not doing a lot of thinking, are you sure that the story has is as rich as it could be and that you're allowing your audience to be as involved with your character as they could be? If you're italicizing a lot in your story to highlight the character's thoughts, then I would say probably not. You're probably not allowing your audience in as close. 
But if you're doing something similar to what I did in the informationist, where you just don't know how to do that. And so you just have stuff come out in conversations and you've you've built your stories around these these conversations. Well, you may be doing it quite successfully without having to italicize something. So if it was me knowing what I know now, but I'm talking to my much younger self, I would say, if you've got a lot of italics on the page because of character thinking, something's not right somewhere. Like either your character isn't thinking enough that it, it's just part of the narrative or you yourself are not even sure where to italicize and what, what not to italicize. But inner dialogue does not need to be italicized. It almost never needs to be italicized if you do it correctly and just let it become the narrative. That's my personal take on it. And it's possible that in today's world, with the sheer volume of how much is being put out there so fast, that maybe the expectations are changing because a lot of what's being put out is being done by people who don't know one way or the other or don't care one way or the other. And so because of that, we're seeing more of it. People are just getting used to it. It's not bothering them as much. And then you got people like me who are old school. And I'm just like, no, I refuse to give into that. I'm not gonna, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, maybe for some people, it's just not gonna bother them as much. But I personally think that when you're italicizing stuff that doesn't need to be italicized, especially when it's inner dialogue, you are making the reader experience less pleasant than it deserves to be. Okay, thank you. And so, yeah, we're we're pretty much aligned on that. Now, I, I have one, this is not a question, but maybe it'll spin its way around to a question. You mentioned dogs earlier, or, you know, pets in general. And, and a lot of times pets show up in books. In this two-book series that I'm reading, a dog showed up in the second book, and it, it added a lot because it gave the main character uh, a way to... To, to have conversations with an inanimate, well, not inanimate, but with a dog who wasn't going to reply. Yeah. But I, I have you ever seen the Jesse Stone movies? Um, I, they're on television. They were always, they were always made for television movies. I don't know I if you've ever seen any of them. Don't. The, the Tom Selleck plays Jesse Stone, who's a police detective, who a, a police so. commissioner or chief in a small town. Anyway, Jesse has a drinking problem and he has women problems and he has a dog and inevitably there will be two or three scenes when the music is perfect and Jesse's doing something that he shouldn't. And they cut over to the dog who's giving him the look. And it's, <laughs> they, they do that in such a way that it's almost a form of inner dialogue that um, yes. the dog is telling you, <laughs> The dog is confirming what you're thinking as you're watching the show. And it's so impactful every time. It just, I mean, that was it. I, that that just popped into my mind. The, no, the, it's the, great. The, the possible question is, and this is a question for, for listeners. If you put pets in your stories, is that an intentional thing because you want a foil for your character? Uh, another foil for your character or is it that you love animals and want to have animals in the story i'm i'm curious because i i bet it could be both i think it's both i think it would depend on the person i'm not going to speak for anybody else but i do know one author who 
uh, was told that his character wasn't very likable and the solution was give him a dog. And um, I don't know. I think it did work somewhat. Um, I think also like, and this could be a whole other discussion, is how elements like that, giving a character a pet or a plant. Okay, so in the, that movie, what's it called? I want to say it's Matilda, but it's not Matilda. But it's it's a, a one-word movie, and it's, a, it's an assassin movie where this, this assassin ends up with this young 12 or 13-year-old girl. Um, I hate that I can't remember the it's name. It's like I'm sorry, a 20-year-old but... movie, like 20, 25 years old? Yeah, uh, Luc Besson, whatever his name yes. is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and he, has, he has a plant. So he has this plant that he takes care of throughout the whole movie. And at, at the end of the story... The, the little girl continues taking care of the plant and that plant doesn't, it's not a character, but because it means so much to one of the characters, it, in a way it becomes a talisman of so much else. And I think that through careful use of, of symbols like that, you can create so much character out of nothing. So in Monroe's case, you know, she travels too much. She's, from too many situations for something like that to work. Like she's just, it, it's too varied. There's nothing consistent in her life except for a handful of people. But if you had a series or a character that had a much more stable life, if they are solitary and do not have people to talk to, yes, you could give them a pet. You could give them a dog. You give them a hamster. You could give them a bird. And, that, and that's, you know, one thing. But you could also do something completely unusual and give them a painted rock. And that rock is their friend that they carry around with them. And when they're having a struggle, they go sit down on a picnic bench and put the rock in front of them and just start talking to the rock. And that is a whole other level of characterization and character building that allows you to do things that you can't even do with an actual realized character. Because when you have dialogue and you are having two people have a conversation, that dialogue has to be real to those two people. And you cannot have one of them say something to the other for the sake of the audience. If the other person would already know it, like, you know, hey, that's a really big truck and we stole it from so-and-so, <laughs> you can't say that to another character because, duh, they were there and they know it. But you can say it to a rock and you can say it to a plant. And you can say it to a dog. <laughs> so you open up a whole different level or type of storytelling when you give your character another way to articulate besides just external and internal dialogue, if that makes any sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. And the movie I was looking it up, uh, the movie is called Leon the Professional. And it was made in 1990. Okay. Luke Besson and, and I think Natalie the young girl. Yes. Yes. And I think her name might be Matilda or something it was like Ma that inside. Ma M-A-T-H-I-L-D-A. It's Matilda, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So that is this week's episode on inner dialogue. Would you like to uh, provide some inner dialogue as an outro today, Taylor? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it means silence. You just sit there in silence. Oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to give you some external dialogue and say thanks for being here, guys. And we'll see you next week. 